Hello everyone, in this CUNP podcast, uh, I'll be interviewing Adrian Thorogood, who is a CUNP scholar. So welcome Adrian, how Thanks are you? Me. Thanks for taking time to be with us. So, uh, what is your current position, if you don't mind me asking? Sure, so um, I believe I'm unique among the CUNP scholars in the sense that I don't actually come from a scientific domain, but rather from a uh, humanities domain. So I'm, I'm a legally trained, I'm actually a lawyer, but uh, <clears throat> I'm also a full-time legal researcher. So my, my position is I'm based at, the, at McGill University um, in the Department of Human Genetics. And we have a, a, a group of legal scholars and lawyers um, called the Center of Genomics and Policy um, that looks at the regulation of, of health research as well as policy to promote innovation in health research. Um, in addition to my position there, where I carry out a range of legal research relating to data privacy, intellectual property, health research regulations, and how those uh, sort of interact with innovative new collaborations in research. Um, I've also been helping out with sort of getting the Canadian Open Neuroscience platform off the ground. So I actually manage the Ethics and Governance Committee of the CONP. And uh, in the last seven or so months, in addition to my uh, scholar project, uh, we've managed to develop an ethics framework addressing mm -hmm. um, the rights and interests of data subjects who participate in neuroscience experiments and whose data is made available through open science, uh, as well as um, we're just putting the fin final touches on a commercialization policy as well as a publication policy, which addresses tricky questions of academic credit and ownership uh, in collaborative science. Okay, very interesting. And um, most people working in open science or open neuroscience usually come from a more uh, scientific background, whereas yours in law. Um, and I was wondering, when and how did you become interested in open science, really? Sure. So I actually, uh, if we really extend out my long history, uh, I originally had an interest in the biomedical uh, field. I worked briefly in clinical trial coordination and epidemiology. In fact, my first paper many years ago was in was in epidemiology. Um, <laughs> nice. My one and only uh, scientific paper, but um, very still very proud of it. And I was found I was interested in a lot of the policy, um, big picture policy questions around health and health research. So this uh, motivated me to go to law school. Uh, where I really did focus a lot on health law and um, health research regulation. Mm -hmm. um, went on to do a brief stint in uh, banking regulation with the federal government, um, but was interested in uh, really liked the setting of studying the health field because you get to learn so much, uh, uh, not just about the law, but in many different areas of law, but about healthcare this really important sector, healthcare, health research, how does innovation happen in that field? Uh, and in, increasingly also learning a lot about technology, um, network technology, software, software collaboration, as I get more involved with bioinformaticians and open science. Mm -hmm. um, but even within that, what, what, what draws, what perhaps draws lawyers and, and legal scholars to uh, study network science, collaborative science, as well as open science, is 
that it raises a lot of quite interesting legal questions. And the law is not really structured to deal with, it's structured to deal with countries, with, mm. with organizations that hold proprietary data. And the law is not really structured to embrace networks of collaborators, as well as, which, you know, this has been uh, an important way of doing science for many centuries, but especially with the advent of the internet, network science is really the way of the future. And so it, it attracts legal thinkers because uh, you have to kind of develop really complex webs of contracts and policies mm. to deal with differences between laws in different countries. Mm. Uh, dealing with different legal contexts, uh, as well as just to clarify responsibilities across networks. So it's, it, mm -hmm. it presents a lot of fascinating legal questions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think open science is really about sharing data and accessing like open data, but um, it raises also many concerns about whose intellectual property it is, like who retains the ownership of the data set um, do you think usually uh, this is something that law students are aware of? Like, is it something that you're taught in law school, for example? How to deal with these ownership uh, issues? Sure. So, I mean, I would say that in terms of awareness, uh, you know, are students aware of these questions? I mean, certainly not. I think uh, law school is really just trying to get you through the basics of constitutional law and corporate law and contractual law. And some of these basics go back hundreds of years. Right. And just like doctors never maybe get a chance to learn about neuroimaging and genetics, or scientists maybe don't even get a chance to get to the point of learning about network science and open science. Um, certainly uh, law students get little exposure to this. Perhaps even a bigger problem is that legal experts and ethics professionals uh, often have little who work in universities and, and kind of encounter or will encounter open science on a day-to-day -day basis um, have quite limited understanding of, of the importance and the momentum in this area. So that's really perhaps an even bigger challenge is, is raising awareness mm -hmm. uh, for Lawyers, whether they're used to dealing with, again, data sets held by companies or by researchers mm -hmm. from an intellectual property point of view, from a data privacy point of view, from a health, health uh, ethics point of view, yeah. it really forces us to really rethink a lot of the principles that we've used to solve problems for, for decades, uh, such as uh, what does individual consent to open science mean? What does privacy protection mean when data's when rich data is being generated and shared with many people around the world what does trust mean when you're shaking hands with researchers around the world <laughs> yeah i stole that one from science uh, but <laughs> i like to use that line yeah you're saying that many uh, many people many lawyers are not aware of all these things that open science involves um, but would you say that researchers are aware of like all the ethical considerations of open science? Is it something that's uh, like well known among among the research community? In your opinion, I think there's different ways to answer this question. I think in terms of that 
most researchers I meet who are engaged in open science or, or are, are exploring open science have a very strong understanding of the basic compliance issues and ethics issues and, and sort of because they kind of confront them as barriers. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for example, researchers have very strong opinions about identifiability and they like to talk about is neuro art are brain images personally identifiable or not? And uh, they talk about consent and withdrawal, and they and they talk about working with cloud service providers. So there's a lot of, and and they're aware of oversight by access committees and by ethics boards. Um, so they have a, a really strong awareness. Perhaps where when it, when it comes to actually solving these problems or moving forward. Uh, maybe they lack sort of, um, I think scientists in some cases, you know, they may la lack some of the instincts that will allow them to actually deliberate over these questions and solve them. So sometimes they recognize the issues, but they see them as sort of a compliance barrier or a checkbox that we just need to get this out of the way so I can get on with my science or get on with my sharing mm. or get on with my access to data all around the world. Often these are, are quite difficult challenges. And in some ways we see that in open science initiatives, often the biggest part of their success is determined on changing culture. And that culture is often reflected to some degree within these sort of ethics principles and rules. And I think scientists tend to see open science as largely a technical challenge. At first, mm -hmm. I mean, we all learn the hard way, but yeah, <laughs> uh, and changing culture is not not easy. You really need to address, address ethical and legal issues at the beginning of your study. Mm -hmm. They're not things you can deal with at the point when you when you go to release data. Mm -hmm. You really have to be have thought about have this ethical horizon you've thought about the, the whole data trajectory and where's data going to end up and so that you can actually address these when you seek your original ethics approval and consent mm -hmm. and these are not necessarily things that researchers think ahead right I be, guess. Be, so so it's sort of are they thinking about it on a day-to-day -day basis uh, are they fundamentally changing their relationship to yeah. to ethics and and regulation in order to sort of achieve this new vision. Mm -hmm. And I think, so it's, they certainly have a really strong grasp when they get there, but often perhaps, and understandably fo they're focused on their, their research questions. Yeah. And, and they maybe come to the questions a bit too late in the process to sometimes makes it difficult to change things at the last. Because then you need to re-consent, like to obtain the, the consent of the participants to have their data released openly is that right yeah so that's one example often we run into barriers that that the original consent um, we've made commitments to to participants to keep their data confidential to keep it within the walls of a hospital mm -hmm. to only use it for certain purposes and these commitments are often uh, don't align with the vision of open science but it goes beyond just kind of consent consenting patients there are always going to be issues with Consent's always going to be imperfect permissions. But in terms of things like funding, you know, setting up big projects, how much 
you know, are they dedicating funds and attention mm. and expertise to um, these issues? So if you fund a big neuroscience project, uh, for example, with the CUNP, it's a good example that they realized at the beginning that they needed to set up uh, an ethics and governance committee and really tackle those issues because at the end of the day, those end up being some of the fundamental barriers to, yeah. to doing sci science to successfully, open science successfully, but as well also responsibly. So um, I hear you're finishing your degree soon. Do you have any plans for afterward? Um, Will you be continuing your research or moving on to other topics? Um, sure. No, I, I'm certainly um, continuing to study uh, legal and policy issues around uh, health research. Uh, I think increasingly building on sort of my research project through the CONP and my experiences with working with the uh, the Ethics and Governance Committee. I Some of my my uh, areas where I, I want to look in, really, they actually really um, are focused a lot more on the intersection, not just of science and law, but on the intersection of, of technology, technology and law. So a lot of this open science is really technology-driven, network technology, mm -hmm. databases, APIs, and these raise a lot of uh, really interesting questions, uh, algorithms, software algorithms. So uh, a few areas where I'm, I'm hoping to continue doing research and, and continue to build on these ideas, uh, looking at healthcare institutions, mm -hmm. uh, increasingly uh, they're becoming a locus of a lot of valuable data generation, both yeah. bioinformatics, neuroinformatics data, but also uh, just informatics data, clinical mm -hmm. data. So really they're really embracing a big data approach and there's a lot of sort of enthusiasm about ai and healthcare yeah um so these are areas i see a lot of the issues around networks data sharing being really important but they're actually if we uh in healthcare there's even less knowledge or interest in doing things collaboratively mm -hmm. it's very institutional institutional silos or small collaborations between institutions, a lot of public-private partnerships. Um, so, but at the same time, given the experience of academic uh, in bioinformatics and neuroinformatics, I think it's quite clear that we're only going to uh, be able to, to, to do research effectively and for the results to be meaningful and, and, and accurate and ultimately to help people if there's high levels of networking, transparency, data sharing, uh, regardless of what sector you're generating data in. Mm -hmm. That's a very uh, interesting point of view. Adrian, could you tell me a little bit more about your CUNP project? Sure. So my research project with the CUNP, uh, uh, I've now completed my master's thesis, which was framed as my CUNP project. Uh, the title of the project is uh, Towards Legal Interoperability in International Health Research. Basically, I've tried to theorize what does interoperability mean in a legal sense mm -hmm. and not just in necessarily a scientific or a technical sense. Yeah. Um, so 
basically, as a starting point, we can look at interoperability as the meaningful exchange of data. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to look at what what are the enablers and barriers to the ex meaningful exchange of data. And often they are scientific. So is the data represented? Have you collected the same types of data if you want to integrate them or compare them? Um, have you collected them based on ontologies? If it's digital exchange of, of data, um, both the scientific and digital ontology of the data itself, increasingly there's also technology layers. So uh, network technologies that now allow us to easily search even for complex bioinformatics data across networks or even to analyze networks of data that are held securely uh, uh, in many databases. Um, but inevitably, there's also human and institutional aspects of interoperability. And I think we're aware of the human aspects, that, that it involves a willingness in many cases to share, yeah. uh, share data, but also certain behaviors uh, are more conducive to sharing and not so things like we talked a bit about consent earlier, mm -hmm. about selecting an appropriate consent form. That's really a, a sort of a human choice mm -hmm. in many cases, um, and that can affect the ability to exchange data at a later point. And and then law is this fundamentally underlying system that, that can either, I did try to look at it in terms of laws often seen as a barrier mm -hmm. to data exchange and collaboration and open science. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, I asked in some cases, can law be perhaps a, also an enabler mm -hmm. and in what cases is it, is it a barrier? So then I move on to sort of define legal interoperability on two, two levels. So in some ways, legal interoperability really has to do with, are the laws of two different countries, uh, compatible in right. a way that allows for data to be exchanged between those countries. And sometimes there can be conflicts, fundamental conflicts in the rules mm -hmm. uh, between different countries, or there can be variation that leads to just uncertainty um, and confusion. Mm -hmm. um, or in some cases, there actually are specific rules that directly block data exchange. So sovereignty rules, data localization rules, uh, where for many are familiar with the example of it's in Europe, uh, European researchers can't send uh, personally identifiable data outside of Europe uh, under unless there are certain conditions in places or it's going to certain countries. So basically I flesh that out. I look at three different areas of uh, that are important to health research mm -hmm. in terms of I look at intellectual property, I look at data privacy, and I look at health research regulation. And within these areas, I look at interoperability on two levels. First of all, is there compatibility between uh, the legal regimes, Canada, Europe, United States? Yep. Or what, where are the fundamental pain points where there's actually the laws are so different or so potentially in conflict that they present a fundamental limit to sharing? Mm. And, and unfortunately, if these these pain points are rare, but where they do exist, they can only really be changed through legal um, uh, amendment. Mm -hmm. uh, on a second level, I often find that law itself is not a fundamental barrier, but it's uh, often comes down to the private choices of institutions and researchers about how they, uh, what 
licenses they choose to associate with their data or what consent forms they draft or what privacy and security safeguards they decide to adopt in their institution. And often it's these choices that lead to incompatibilities at later points. And so we see the importance of, of really that every time we make one of these choices, we need to be aware, researchers need to be aware of the potential compatibility issue. So a mm -hmm. lot more awareness about so just defining this concept of legal interoperability helps um, raise awareness about standardization, standardizing your commitments to participants because mm -hmm. you know that datas are going going to flow around the world and and so on and so forth. Yeah. It's nice to see that your um, your research has a, a concrete impact on how the research is made on a very technical level, even if it's not directly related to like neuroscience or uh, something that's more like in science and technology, really. Sure, yeah. I, I try to look at sort of network science. Yeah. Uh, so law is fundamentally concerned with national borders, mm -hmm. institutional accountability, and individual ownership or control. Mm -hmm. And open science or many forms of networks science are trying to do the opposite. They're trying to let many problem solvers yeah. solve a problem. They're trying to relinquish control over data, both by the researchers who generate the data, but mm -hmm. essentially, inevitably also from the people that provide the data to the researchers. Um, so, so I think it's uh, helpful to sort of conceptualize where there are fundamental uh, challenges between this vision of collaborative science and, and, uh, and law. We can think about interoperability, just to tie interoperability directly to open science. We often find that the best, if not the only way to do effectively do network science is by doing open science, where there are no uh, conditions mm -hmm. or rules attached to the data. Mm -hmm. Because the scale that we, in which we want to connect data sets and, and analyze them is, is so fast that if we have any rules in place, even small differences in rules about what can be done with data or what obligations to protect data, that you know, uh, what privacy obligations attach to data, mm -hmm. uh, even the smallest um, restrictions can quickly stack up yeah. and become basically can preclude the collaboration at all. So I think, again, that's why it's so important that we push for open science and realize that there may be fundamental trade-offs mm -hmm. with individual, with the interests of individual scientists, with individual uh, interests of individual participants, and that we are clear about that, and we and we discuss that, and we decide as a society what uh, which what do we want more of? Do we want more innovation? Do we want more accurate science? Do we want more accurate ther uh, effective therapies, mm -hmm. or do we? is the only thing that we want in society, privacy and yeah. and sort of absolute control over our data, meaning just that nobody can use it for anything. Mm -hmm. But there are alternative <laughs> visions to that we can do network science without necessarily being completely open. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of attempts now to develop affiliated networks of companies, hospitals, research institutions, that can maybe strike a balance 
or at least their vision is to strike a balance between, you know, we can ensure that the benefits accrue to us, to our network. We can ensure that um, we keep data private and secure. Mm-hmm. So the first point being, it's important that, you know, to attract um, investment, uh, those investing companies may may want to ensure that they have a, a good chance of profiting. Yeah. Um, so we're seeing that alternative creeping up. And I think there's going to be an interesting balance between open, truly open science approaches and more closed uh, collaborations, um, but that are using many of the same technologies as open science to rapidly exchange and right. analyze data across multiple institutions. And so I think uh, there's no easy answer about which of those models is eventually going to be best for innovation. And I think we really need to experiment with both governance models mm-hmm. and and, and see, sort of see which ones are most effective, which ones are most risky. We really need to try get the open science way and just get the data out there mm-hmm. and really evaluate is this accelerating research? Is this having the benefits that we propose it has? Mm-hmm. And is it is it are the risks that we've suspected are they actually materializing, or, or were they just sort of theoretical risks? Mm-hmm. In which case, that might change the balance. So once we have some evidence, and um, do you think there's uh, an easy way to uh, make open science successful? That's really the tricky uh, question. I I often feel. Um, guilty that as a legal and law and ethics person, I'm often sort of raising flags Mm -hmm. and kind of flagging problems, making it more difficult for (laughs) well-intentioned researchers to, to, uh, achieve what they want to achieve. Yeah. But at the same time, I find it's very hard to solve any problems if you don't flag them first. Definitely, yeah. yeah. So, and in some, you know, I think the idea is that it is helpful because they'll run into it. Yeah. At one point, mm-hmm. but I, I suppose I, I would I would highlight again that that this really needs to be a the way forward is really conceiving of open science is not just a technical and scientific problem to be solved by programmers, mm-hmm. um, but really as a fundamental cultural shift, which really has to be pushed by scientific leaders. Uh, has to be pushed by policymakers. Uh, institutions really have to buy in, mm. as we're seeing at McGill and elsewhere, um, to that that vision because it has to affect the culture throughout the the whole institution or, or inevitably many institutions. Mm-hmm. That seems to be so. Recognizing the human, political, um, and cultural aspects as key to where we actually need to pour resources, advocate for that that mm-hmm. vision and that approach, as well as, I mentioned earlier, experimentation, that we really need to pilot these approaches, different approaches, yeah. more open approaches. We can't have one way of doing science. And often that is the issue with law and ethics. Uh, we have these layers of regulations and we get to a point where we say, well, there's only one way to do, to manage data. Mm -hmm. And the reality is we don't know. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be great opportunities to managing data in a different way. Um, But we're sort of stuck in these patterns and and expectations of how to do it. Uh, And so 
you know, I, I often more not just pitch this to scientists, but also to try and pitch this to ethics boards and say, mm-hmm. we really need to fundamentally change how we do science to benefit from these technologies, opportunities from collaboration, uh, to, uh, collective intelligence. But we, we, we can't do it unless we try. We have to start somewhere. You have to let us try mm-hmm. to do it this way somewhere. And then we can learn from that and only through those pilots will we eventually become new standards of doing new standard ways of doing things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So just to quickly wrap this up, I know you're a very busy person. Uh, is there anything that you do when you have free time? Sure. Well, uh, I have basically a list of, of hobbies and activities that all involve high risk of, of, of head injury. (laughs) And I've perhaps my time working with brilliant neuroscientists at the <laughs> at McGill has has forced me to question my my hobbies but first of all I'm a big cyclist mm-hmm. uh, I like to put my one-year-old daughter on the back of my bike and and whether it's just getting to work and back or going for a ride on the weekend um, that's a big passion for me but certainly a dangerous probably one of the most dangerous sports especially in Montreal yeah um, and then, of course, uh, I'm I'm a big rugby fan as well, and uh, nice uh, play rugby and ice hockey as well. So, oh wow, yeah. um, definitely very active. Uh, I think in the <laughs> last few years, I've started to partly because of all the intention that's being put in healthy brains, healthy lives. Oh yeah, um, neuroscience and just a lot of the science I'm being exposed to, and perhaps just fatherhood and becoming mm-hmm. more responsible and independence. <laughs> uh, I'm starting to. Uh, perhaps look for safer hobbies. Yeah, that's very wise. All right. Well, thank you very much, Adrian, for coming here today and taking time to answer these questions. And um, we're hoping to hear more from you in the future. Sure. Thank you very much for the time.